0: We are continuing in Matthew chapter 26. Verses 6 through 16. Matthew writes, now when Judas, or when Jesus rather was in Bethany, when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar, a very costly perfume, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. But when the disciples saw this, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price, and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good work to me. For you always have the poor with you. But you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed, in the whole world, that what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me to deliver him to you? And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver to him. And from then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have preserved it for us. Not through mystical means, but through multiplication, through thousands of manuscripts. We thank you that even in this story, when we read of the beautiful act of this woman and the treacherous, wicked act of Judas, you have preserved your word that we would learn. So as we we examine these two and then compare them and contrast them, help us to see their hearts, which were in opposition that we may know where our heart is and aim to have it settled in you. We thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. By way of a little bit of background, Matthew, Mark, and John all include this narrative. Luke doesn't. Luke includes a different situation with a different woman at a different time. Uh, Matthew and Mark place it thematically on this Wednesday night of Passion Week. John places it chronologically on the evening before Jesus entered Jerusalem during the triumphant entry, so it would have been the previous Saturday evening. Um, the broad outline of the passage is very simple: Mary anoints Jesus, Judas agrees to betray him, and then we then we bring it home. Um, So let's look at these two events. When Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very costly perfume. She poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. That's the situation. This woman John identifies as Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. It follows in John chapter 12, of course, follows John chapter 11. That's how numbers work. But it follows the resurrection of Lazarus, where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus figured very, very importantly. And then John begins chapter 12 by saying, Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a litre, about twelve ounces of perfume of very costly pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. There are several Marys in the Gospels. John wants us to know this: this is the Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Mary comes to Jesus with an alabaster jar. Alabaster itself was very costly. It is a soft, fine-grained mineral that is easily worked. It's delicate, was expensive, but was often used for various pur- purposes, <coughs> Excuse me, including containers for perfumes and medicines and ointments. Um, this was a Roman litra, about 12 ounces of pure nard or spiked nard. Spiked nard is a plant that grows in the Himalayas, so it comes from a, a, ver- a great distance from Israel, that alone would have made it expensive. All the gospels say that the oil or perfume was very costly, uh, valued at about 300 denarii, which would have been about a year's earnings. Um, it's hard to imagine pouring out uh, what in our time might be 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 thousand dollars worth of perfume all at one time. Uh, Mary pours the perfume out. Matthew says she, and, Ma- and Mark says she poured it on Jesus' head. John says she poured it on his feet. Jesus himself in Matthew twenty six twelve, says that she poured it on his body. So she didn't just dump it out in one place. She anointed his whole body for burial. Uh, none of these are contradictions in the text. They're simply differences in the way they, they tell the story. Um, that's very, very simple. But there's a complaint in verse 8. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Um, John gets more specific and says in verse 4 of John 12, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was going to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? So I think what we're seeing is Judas begins the complaint and the other disciples pick it up as their own. They adopt it. So let me just point out a couple of things here. Uh, First of all, do you see how Judas has done such a great job disguising himself as a disciple that the others are happy to follow his lead? The others are happy to say Judas has got the right attitude here. He's worth following in this. Um, Interestingly enough, virtually every time Judas is mentioned in the Gospels, he is either called the betrayer or he's in the act of betraying, or in the aftermath of betraying Jesus, um, it's as though the gospel writers, uh, even as as okay, let me put it this way, the gospel writers frequently let the story develop. They don't simply come out and tell us everything at once. It's it's told in a story form, and like good storytelling, they let it develop and they let the drama of it develop. But they don't say, "Judas, boy, he was great. He was wonderful. <sighs> what a shock." Judas, from the very first mention in all the Gospels, is the one who betrays Jesus. Maybe that's because they were taken in so thoroughly. They don't want us taken in as we read the Gospels. The second thing that I would point out is that the fact that a large group has a complaint doesn't make it valid. A lie is a lie even when the majority believe it. The more people who believe a lie, the more damaging it can be because the harder it is to challenge But we can't put all the blame here on Judas. Matthew makes it clear that all the disciples were indignant. They're all morally offended by Mary's actions. They're not shouting at her. They're shaking their heads. They're pursing their lips. They're muttering at her. She hears it. Um, Here's another thing to point out. Matthew, who's writing this gospel, is one of those morally offended men. He's one of those being critical. Judas begins this complaint because John says in verse 6 of John 12, he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to take from what was put into it. Judas is unhappy because he measures everything by its potential value to him. He's one of those men of depraved mind Paul warns Timothy about who suppose that godliness is a means of great gain. As Jesus traveled, people would give him money, perhaps for his needs and his disciples' needs, perhaps for the poor. Jesus put Judas in charge of the, the money box. He knew every time Judas stole. It never took him by surprise. There's no hint in the Gospels that Jesus ever rebuked Judas for doing this. He simply let him continue to do that. The disciples probably didn't realize it until Judas was out of the picture and one of them took control of the money box and they realized that it was, it was short and they understood what was happening. So as kind of a tap on this nail, God saves his people by delivering them from the power and the presence and the penalty of sin. He judges the wicked by giving them over to the power presence and penalty of sin. He frequently judges the wicked by opening the door for them to commit more sin. So Jesus then responds to the complaint in verse 10. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good work to me. If you always have the poor with you, you do not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. So to begin with, Mary is bothered by their criticism. The, the sense of that is she's embarrassed, she's ashamed, she's discomforted. They've, they've thrown a burden of guilt on her shoulders for what she did. They're causing her to second think the rightness of her actions. And notice that Jesus doesn't say, hey, guys, leave her alone. You know, after all, she meant well. As though he agreed that she probably shouldn't have done that, but he's, he's going to give her a break because of good intentions. But he says her action is a good work, which could also be translated a fitting work or an appropriate work or even a beautiful work. And what he's saying here, I think, is in this moment, This was exactly what needed to happen. The poor will always be there. Jesus will not always be there. There's actually very little time remaining to do an act of service for him. 24 hours from this point, he'll be having Passover with his disciples. A few hours after that, he's arrested and tried and crucified. The time to do good for him is almost over. He also gives us Mary's motivations We don't need to think that she just had an emotional response. She's logical. She's thinking about it. She's aware, perhaps more aware of anybody else of what's happening. He says, she did it to prepare me for burial. That was her motivation. Um, Years ago we knew a couple. They had a few kids. They were heading off to be missionaries in Turkey. They were from here in Norfolk. One night they invited us to their home. We arrived. They greeted us in Turkish and proceeded to speak Turkish for 15 or 20 minutes at least. We were just completely confused. Because if you don't understand already, we don't speak Turkish. They they brought us in. They sat us down. I think they had us take our shoes off. And then the husband came to us with this bottle of this yellow liquid and had us motion for us to hold out our hands and poured some of it into our hands, and it was this lemon-smelling stuff. It turned out to be lemon cologne. And this is a thing that they do culturally in Turkey. When somebody comes to your home you, because it's hot there, it's dry, they, they pour out some lemon cologne in your hands and you wipe your hands and your face and the alcohol kind of cools you off as it evaporates and it's, it smells good and maybe certain people don't smell good there and it's just a nice thing to do. But they didn't pour out a quart of it. Mary pours out a 12 ounces of this oily perfume uh, had it been a regular Sunday for, for both services, I would have brought a little bottle of Spikenard that I've got. Um, it's not a pretty smell. It's not, it's not like the pretty perfumes that my wife wears sometimes. It's not a pretty smell. It's a strong smell. It's in a little bottle with a little roller, and if you put just a tiny little smear on it it's, it, it's very apparent that it has a strong aroma. I can't imagine what 12 ounces in a small room would have done. People must have been coughing. So pouring out that amount on somebody was not, is not something that we do today. It wasn't what they did then either. You didn't pour out 12 ounces of perfume on somebody when they came in. You might dab a little bit, you might give them something to refresh themselves, but it's small amounts. Mary does this by de- from knowing Jesus' teachings. He's been talking about his own crucifixion for months. She knows it from the prompting of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is going to die very, very soon. And rather than waiting for him to die, she decides to go ahead and take her part in anointing him for burial while he's still alive. It's not driven by emotion. It's driven by her faith and conviction and love for him, an act of service to him. And Jesus says it's such a remarkable gift that wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. He doesn't mean that every time we have a one minute to present Christ to somebody, we're going to mention her. We don't. He's telling us that in in at least three of the Gospels, it's going to be there. And as people read the Gospels, they're going to see what she did and see his attitude toward her. That's the story of Mary and the anointing of Jesus. What about Judas in verse 14? Then one of the 12 named Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me to deliver him to you? And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver to him. And from then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. The Gospels never present Judas as a genuine disciple who became disillusioned. They always present him every time as the betrayer by title, or they present him in the act of betraying Jesus. The apostles were really very careful and deliberate in this. They didn't want to make anybody to make the mistake that they made in assuming for so long Judas was genuine. They, they kind of uh, spoil the story at that point. They don't let us uncover it. They want us to see it coming. Nevertheless, it's a shocking thing for us to see one of Jesus' disciples take the lead in betraying him. Matthew is very careful to say, this is one of the 12. This is one of those who's been with Jesus for the better part of three years. This is not an enemy. This is not a casual bystander. Judas Iscariot had heard everything Jesus had taught. He had seen thousands of miracles performed by Jesus. The healings, the the breaking of the bread, and the the feeding of the 5,000. He ate of the bread and the fish. He was in the boat when Jesus calmed the storm. But nothing that Jesus said or did convinced him. And the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back was Jesus praising Mary for wasting a year's worth of perfume. I don't think we can come to any other conclusion. It's not accidental that Jesus praises Mary and even says whenever the gospel's preached, she's going to be mentioned, and then Judas gets up and says, I've had enough. He's Judas got the other disciples to be morally offended that the money was not, the money, uh, the value of the perfume was not given to the poor. Really, Judas was morally offended that he had no opportunity to steal. So he makes the first move toward the chief priests. The chief priests don't make the first move. He does. There are are a variety of theories about why Judas does this. Some present him as a, as a, uh, a genuine disciple who was trying to put Jesus in the position of actually establishing his kingdom. Some present him as a zealot who was trying to prompt a a war to drive out the Romans. Uh, I've got a few commentaries that say, we just don't know why. We do know why he did this. Verse 15, what are you willing to give me to deliver him to you? He wanted money. And we're told by Matthew that they weighed out 30 pieces of silver to him. 30 pieces of silver is mentioned twice in the Old Testament. Both times are important for this story. In Exodus 21, 32, 30 pieces of silver is the minimum price for an adult slave. If person A owns an ox and the ox gets loose and kills the adult slave of person B, person A is to pay person B 30 pieces of silver. That's what a slave is worth. And in Zechariah 11, verses 12 and 13, it's the value that the Israelites placed upon Yahweh. So in verse 12, Zechariah says, I said to them, I said to the people of Israel, if it's good in your sight, give me my wages as a prophet. But if not, never mind. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. Then Yahweh said to me, throw it to the potter. That valuable price at which, I was, at which I was valued by them. So I took the 30 shekels of silver and threw them to the potter in the house of Yahweh. We've, we've got several prophecies and prophetic pictures of Judas receiving 30 pieces of silver and then throwing the money back into the sanctuary and the chief priests, uh, just so ironically, the chief priests say, we can't keep this, this is blood money. When it came from them, And so they used it to buy a potter's field to bury Judas in after he committed suicide. Judas didn't bargain for Jesus' life. He was willing to accept 30 pieces of silver. If they were going to get 300 pieces of silver for the perfume, maybe he felt like a tenth was what he could reasonably steal without getting caught. And so he got his money. The bringing-at-home section is a little bit longer than typical today. We we see that Mary was devoted to Jesus. Judas was only devoted to himself. We see that Mary's love for Jesus was deep and humbling, uh, while Judas was faithless and apathetic and greedy. We see that Mary's tender heart was bothered even by the possibility that she may have misjudged the moment and done the wrong thing. Judas, on the other hand, feels nothing as he bargains for Jesus' blood. Loving, uh, love for Jesus is the very heart of discipleship. Love for self is the very opposite of discipleship. And so I, I think I could say every Christian can relate to Mary. We've all had moments, uh, perhaps many moments, when we would have given anything we had in our possession to the Lord in, in some way through, through his people in any way he desired. He he touched our hearts with his glory and his kindness. He expanded our th- thoughts and minds with his word. He He impressed upon us our own sinfulness and the magnificence of his forgiveness. And we would have done anything for him in that moment. But we've also got some Judas in us. In times of disappointment or disillusionment, of exhaustion or suffering, in fear or in pain or suffering we can all, and at times we all have, traded our faith for something that was infinitely less substantial, but momentarily more comforting. And we always learn at the end of that moment, this wasn't comforting at all. And I actually gave up the grasp on that which is comforting, which comes back to us because of the grace of God through confession. But we give it up so much of the time. So I praise God, you should praise God too, that every Christian is headed in the direction of Mary. And away from the direction of Judas, the Father will fin- finish his good work in us. The Son will never cast us away. The Spirit will never le- leave us, Ichabod, leave us without his glory. He'll never abandon us. As we see in, in Mary, we can be uncertain and doubtful about even our best Uh, And and most faithful acts of service. The criticism of somebody else toward us in that tender moment can be crushing. And so we owe it to one another to, to stop when we see somebody serving in a unique way. And if we feel like something needs to be said, say it gently, say it carefully, perhaps not even at that moment. As we see in the disciples, all of us have the ability as a group to be very wrong in in the moment and we should be more patient with others. There's a reminder here that our hope is not in ourselves, it's not in our rightness, it's not in our sense of moral rightness or moral outrage, it's in the savior to save. And so the question that I have this this morning bringing this to a close is was Jesus only your savior in your past? Or is he your savior today? If, did Jesus just save you at some moment in the past and start you on the right road so that you can live the rest of this Christian life on your own? If Jesus was only your savior in the past, you should be afraid because you've not walked since then faithfully. If Jesus was your savior yesterday and he is your savior today and remains your savior tomorrow, you have nothing to fear. And like Mary, the moment will come perhaps when you can open up your hand and you can give what to you in that moment is one of the most precious things you possess without fear. By the grace of God, the believers around you will not criticize you for it. And by the grace of God, in those moments of fear and exhaustion and pain and suffering, you won't do what Judas did and try and get a a fraction in order to comfort yourself. Father, we thank you for your word and for your love for us, for your graciousness to us. Would you help us to continue to remember and continue to reflect on the greatness of what Jesus has done. The men around Mary were shocked that she would have wasted such a tremendously costly substance. And yet for you, it, it wasn't worth what one of her tears would have been. John writes that she poured out the perfume on your feet and then she washed them with her tears. And she dried them with her hair. And it wasn't the perfume that was valuable to you. It was the love that was valuable. Teach us that love. Teach us that love, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name.